Hello, and welcome back to Tomato Tomato. I am your host, you guessed it, Talia Sherman. And before we get started with today's interview, I want to say that I am incredibly grateful to anyone and everyone who's ever listened to this podcast for the entire year that I've been producing episodes. Last month in late March, I, I guess by myself, sort of celebrated the one-year anniversary of Tomato Tomato. And I wanted to share that joy with all of you because I'm so grateful and frankly shocked that I'm still producing episodes a year and a month after I started this project with the intention of making it like a fun little silly senior spring thing fling you know like hey learning fun I truly when I started this project never thought that it would become anything more than a senior high school project where I would do like a couple fun little silly episodes and then it would sort of be on the internet forever and no one would ever listen to it but I could always say like oh when I was in high school I did a podcast I never thought that this would expand beyond the scope of high school but now it has i i never imagined that i would be interviewing linguists um like the one that i'm interviewing today professor donna joe napoli from swarthmore college i never imagined that i would interview the director of brown's language and thought lab i absolutely never thought that i would sit down with an employee of google ai and ask her questions about her research and i certainly never expected that i would become a linguistics major because i never knew what linguistics was until a year ago so thank you to everyone who's been listening for this entire year or for many more years to come. And let's get into the interview today. Today's interview is with the legendary author, linguist, mathematician, teacher, Donna Jo Napoli. If you want to understand the depth and breadth of her work in linguistics, you can visit her Wikipedia page because she has a Wikipedia page, which is linked in the episode description. But for the purposes of this interview in particular, you should know that she received a bachelor's degree in mathematics and a PhD in romance languages from Harvard. And then she went to MIT to get a PhD in linguistics. And now she has worked on syntax, semantics, phonetics, basically every subfield in linguistics. But currently she uses her background in math to research sign languages and study how biomechanics affect the lexicon, as we'll get into in the interview. We're going to discuss her research on sign languages, the intersection between math and linguistics, the importance and benefits of studying language scientifically, and the social meaning of prosody. And at the end, of course, always we spiral into the vital importance of understanding language and how bias comes through language and how studying linguistics will just make you a better person and, as Donna Jo puts it, free your brain. So please enjoy this interview. It's been so fun to record and thank you so much for listening for this past year. My first question to you really is, rather than walking me through your journey in linguistics, because that could really take forever because you've done so much, what has in general or is now just really getting you excited about linguistics or research or learning in general and throughout your career trajectory in academia, what is it that's, that's propelled you through? What's, what's been kind of the through line? What is, what's getting out of bed in the morning? Wow. Uh, it, it's a good question, but it is very huge. I will not say that it's linguistic theory. I love linguistic theory. It's fun. But what really makes me feel passionate is when I see something coming out of it beyond winning an argument. <laughs> um, like so much in theoretical linguistics is you lay down what you think is the situation and you amass arguments to that effect. And you feel good when you've reached the bottom. I mean, you've never really won because you're always wrong. There's always 
things that you haven't looked at, languages you haven't looked at, where when you put these things together, it shows that you're wrong, but maybe you're as right as you can be at this moment. Maybe you've rallied everything that you know of and you've dealt with all kinds of potential problems and you feel good. And that is wonderful and exciting. <laughs> but I love better when I can see a use for this kind of way of going about things out in the world. So I love it when I see students walk into a class, have no idea how to organize data into paradigms, who don't understand that a paradigm is an analysis and that they've always got analyses of the data around them, they, but they haven't explicitly stated them. And so when they do, they can see the predictions that their analyses, which are really just hypotheses, that the predictions that they make, and then they can go start searching for things. And I love to see students come from zero to mm. the point where if they're in the middle of a movie and somebody says something, they have to get up and go out and write it down because that thing so tantalized them with respect to how it fits. And I see them going off to medical school, law school, teaching, all kinds of things where they're carrying their skills with them. So I really love teaching. But my other huge passion is literacy. And I've been very involved with how you gain literacy in a language that is not your language. and maybe will never be your language. It will always be just a text language for you. In particular, I'm really concerned with how deaf children learn to read and how deaf children get language. So that's been a big part of my work. Yeah, I noticed that throughout doing research on you. There's a strong theme of pedagogy in everything you do, right? It's always about how am I going to innovate yeah. how to teach, right? Yes. Absolutely. Uh, and that that's kind of uh, true wherever I've taught. I, I taught a number of places before I came to the college where I teach now. And even when I was in a university, teaching was very, very exciting for me. But when people say that professors in universities don't really care about their teaching, they're wrong. There were tons of people in the universities that I taught at who really were, who would get into a great debate over what was the best way to try to present something in the classroom. Some people are drawn into academia simply because there's no laboratory anywhere that will pay them to do their work and academia will pay them to do their research. But I think most people who get into academia, yes, they love their research, but they're also into getting other people to love that work and so teaching. <laughs> yeah. But I guess with the research, something that's really fascinating me in terms of your research is that you really bring in STEM and linguistics. You're totally interdisciplinary, but most linguists in general, I would say, are interdisciplinary when it comes to the social, other social sciences and humanities, but not so much math. But you, uh, your first degree was in mathematics. So what's going on between math and linguistics? You know, what is it that's going on with biomechanics and how they affect the lexicon. I read that and I was like, what? Biomechanics affect the lexicon? What's going on here with STEM and linguistics? Yeah, I think that when you talk about 
systems and formal systems, and you talk about language and you look at syntax or semantics, you can get very discouraged very quickly <laughs> because things are constantly changing, number one, and there's lots of variation in what people consider acceptable. And for a long time in linguistics, we used to collect people's intuitions about something. And then we came to find that if you actually looked at a large set of data, this thing where you were sure this is the way to do it, maybe only 60% of the tokens that involve that construction in your data do it the way that you had thought was the only way to do it, the right way to do it. And, and so we really do have much more variation in our syntax and in our semantics than is a basis for being entirely content in syntax and semantics. However, when it comes to phonetics, which is articulatory and, you know, for a spoken language, acoustic, you're dealing with kind of physical realities. And it isn't that a decision isn't a physical reality. It is. The things that go on in your brain as you make a decision is a physical reality, but it's a different sort of physical reality. It's not a physical reality that, that you can see in any way or that you can put your finger on in any way. Whereas in phonetics with articulation, you can see where did the tongue go? What did it do? And if you're looking at sign languages, you can see, did the elbow move or was it only the wrist that moved? What moved? And then once you're onto these physical things, then you find they really do behave hugely more consistently than those other systems, which are still systems, and we still want to study them, and we still need to get at them in very indirect ways. But boy, am I loving phonetics of sign languages. I can see it. It's there, and it allows me to use the training or the way of thinking that I was trained in in math. So if you're moving your arm, your whole arm, it's a whole lot more weight and work, therefore, than if you're just moving from the elbow down. And that's a whole lot more work than if you're just moving from the elbow down, but you're not involving any lift. So this is involving lift when the elbow flexes or not. But when the radial ulnar moves, it's not involving lift. So it's less work. And if you just move the wrist, it's only that much that's moving. And if you just move a finger, it's only that much. So like the more distal you get from the trunk, the less work it is to move that thing. And you can look at variation in a very mathematical way. <laughs> you can measure things with huge satisfaction. I also look at how people draw in the air when you, when you draw, say, a star. Do you use two hands? Do you use one hand? Where do you start? Do you start in different places depending upon what? Uh, and and you, can, you can measure it. It's cool. I love it. <laughs> I'm kind of blown away at really how, a lot of times how mathematical linguistics can be. 
I'm in arguably one of the more humanities-esque linguistics class at the moment. I'm in a sociolinguistics class. It's heavily statistical. You know, even when you're looking at an acoustic language like spoken English would be, it still is just a lot of numbers because you often reduce your data down to numbers. And I imagine with sign language, even more so, right? Because you're literally measuring these sort of angles of articulation a lot of the time, right? Yeah, but the things that you're doing in your social class, they're so important because variation is so rampant. And I don't say rampant because that makes it sound like I think it's arbitrary and crazy. I doubt it's arbitrary and crazy. I imagine that there are all kinds of things affecting what the variation would be and that then affect which variant wins over time and what new variants come up. So, so I'm not saying anything bad about it, but I, I think that statistics and understanding how to use your statistics, if you're going to look at how people actually pronounce things, how they actually throw their sentences together, that's critical. On the other hand, I still love also qualitative studies in sociolinguistics. I think that it's hard to appreciate how much language is critical to our identity without reading the testimonies of people who have felt their language to be threatened or put down or whatever. So I, I love those studies as well. There isn't much linguistics that I don't love. Yes, that's definitely abundantly clear. Going back to, like, to biomechanics, though, can you talk a little bit about how that affects the lexicon and sort of what's going on there? Okay. All right. So um, if I'm signing to you, I pretty much want to keep my eyes on your eyes. That's very much how things are done for most of a sentence. There can be things that come along that are called classifiers and certain classifiers, your eyes will go onto the classifier instead of on your addressee. But otherwise, you keep your eyes on each other, which means that you're facing each other. Now, why don't you take your hands and do what I do with my hands? Because I think y'all understand it better. Okay, so we've got two hands and when you move both hands, you don't tend to do one thing with one hand and something else with the other hand. You tend to move your hands in such a way that they are reflexively symmetrical across a plane. The plane that I'm looking at right now is the mid-sagittal plane that just slices your body in half right down from head to toe. And that's the most common plane of symmetry. But you could also have a plane horizontally. You could also have a plane standing in front of you a kind of a vertical plane. But most lines, if both hands are moving, they either move symmetrically, reflexively symmetrical across this plane, or they move out of phase symmetrically, which is a mathematical concept. <laughs> so say that you've got two lines coming out from in front of you, all right? And your hands are on those two lines, Let's say that the length of those two lines is two units. So you've got from minus one to zero and from zero to one. So if, if you've got them out of phase, if one hand is at zero, the other's at plus one. And then they'll move toward each other and pass at zero. 
and then now the other hand is at minus one, they they changed where they are. One's at minus one and the other's at plus one. And you go back and forth. That's additive inverses. You add where they are on their line at any given point and you add them together and it'll equal zero. So so math comes into that idea too. Math is all over the place. All right. So if you go like that and then back and you just let yourself do it, all, stretch your arms out all the way and do it. If you were not controlling your torso, you would wind up swaying or rocking. You would wind up rocking forward and back. That's what's going to happen. That's the torque that's going to be induced. And it's like you'll, you're sort of spinning around and axis goes through you through the side. So you're going around that axis, but you, you don't do that. You hold yourself firm. If you had the hands go out of phase, you'd find that you were starting to twist this way and that way. If you didn't hold yourself firm, you'd be rotating around an axis that goes vertically through your head. If, uh, let's say that you had a sign like this, out of phase, up and down. If you just let it go, you'd start swaying side to side. And it would be like you were on a pole going through the middle of you and you were rotating around it. So you've got these three canonical directions and you could spin on all of them, but you don't. In sign languages, you never see people spinning away from each other or falling forward. They are resisting it. But when you look, if you look at a sign where, let's take your two hands and you move them apart from each other, that doesn't do anything. You're, you're not going to go forward. You're not going to go back. They're balancing each other. You move them toward each other. That doesn't do anything. We find that these are the most common movements, the ones that don't require you to work against torque. And these sideways sway. And these forward and back rock are less common than the ones that don't involve torque, but they're a lot more common than the one that would make you twist away. And that's because of the shape of the human body. The human body is spread out along the vertical axis. So it would be really easy to start it spinning. Whereas our feet are on the ground and it's hard to get us spinning forward or get us spinning sideways. So the ones that you really have to work to fight the torque, they're rare. We don't use those signs very much. And it, it lines up beautifully what, what percentage of, of signs make you use energy to fight torque so that you can stay straight. And that's a neat thing. Yeah. Yeah. So that's biomechanics affecting the lexicon. A word might come in that does something like that, okay? But over time, it'll change to be something like that. Okay, so just to summarize, so if I'm moving my hands sort of, if I have my hands parallel to each other and I'm moving them forward, sort of out, like away from me and then back and forth, that fights toward. So if there is a word that is in a sign language that where I move my hands outward and back, that's going to shift because of articulatory ease, because the pressures of articulatory ease to be something where I move my hands right and left. Well, that's what we see. I mean, that's our explanation that, that there's a correlation between the, how easy it is to get the body spinning 
and how much you have to fight it and what percentage of signs in the lexicon do that. So, and you know, it could be that it's random, just happened that way, but probably not. I mean, we're physical. Yeah. Right. But you can make a parallel between that and, uh, you know, acoustic phonetics too. You can say like, it's hard to to pronounce certain things. And that's why we have, you know, things like metathesis in linguistics, where, you know, we have prescription versus prescription. All these things are also for articulatory ease a lot of the time. Uh, I, I think that's a very nice point. Clusters of consonants require some organization on them. We allow, for example, blue, B, L, blah, but we don't allow L, B, blah, blah. We don't do that in the languages that I know. <laughs> and I'm thinking right now, about Slavic languages, I'm wondering when you have LB written, if there isn't a vowel between the L and the B, Lubyan, as opposed to blah. I don't know. Well, we have we have bulb in the English language. We have that word. Uh, that's LB at the end. Oh, that's LB. Right. Okay. Right. I'm talking yeah. about English. And you're absolutely right. When you walk into a syllable and you walk out of a syllable, it's a mathematical symmetry again. The edges of your syllable, beginning and end edges, have certain restrictions on them. Then you go in a little bit, and they have other restrictions. And then you go in a little bit, and, and then you get to your nucleus, and everything is different. But if you don't have clusters, then you don't have to worry about what can go with what. So in some ways, a language that doesn't have clusters or getting rid of clusters in a given word, in some ways it makes it simpler. I mean, obviously it is simpler articulatorily. Two sounds are more complex than one, but it's also maybe mentally simpler because you don't have to think about phonotactics. You don't have to think about what affects what. You just start with any consonant, follow it with any vowel, and on you go. There's a, there's a lot going on with like these these internal unspoken rules of language that people are still trying to figure out and trying to figure out for, for centuries, which is fascinating. I want to ask about prosody. You did this amazing study on newscasters where you found that not only are newscasters using prosodically distinct speech, right? They're, it's, it's a different prosody than the than speech that you and I would use to talk to each other. Um, but participants of the study who listened to newscasters and then non-newscasters were able to tell from pretty minimal data who was a newscaster and who was not, simply because of specific features. And then in the conclusion of this study, you draw parallels between newscaster speech and speech used by doctors and lawyers and then motherese, which is where I was like, oh, my God, because... For people who don't know, motherese is the word we use for the language that mothers or caregivers will often use for infants or babies to speak to them in some way that doesn't use advanced syntax or articulation that we normally use. So I totally looked. What's going on with prosody here? But also like the, the cognition of that is fascinating and just sort of like the reaction time of how quickly we can, we can listen to like three seconds of someone speaking like, oh yeah, newscaster, because it's so prosodically distinct. But prosody at least my limited knowledge, it's pretty difficult to study as like a linguistic variable. 
Porosity is, is hard. So what's what's going on here? Yeah. And you know, you make a, a lovely point. It's like you're running across the grass in a frisbee game and you jump and you catch it. And a dog does it too. And if you were to do the mathematics of it, you'd have a relatively complex bit of mathematics in front of you. I don't know whether we're doing mathematics. I doubt it because I don't think dogs do mathematics. I doubt that. And, and you see little children catching things. There's something going on where our brains are able to do things that we are not explicitly aware of. And they do it all the time. So you'll be in a room and somebody has a television blaring in the next room and you can put your hands over your ears so that you can't make out a single word, but you'll know this is a commercial right now, or this is a really sad melodrama or whatever. We do have ways of talking. And right now, I bet if someone were to do something on my prosody, they'd say that it sounded like teacher talk because I'm trying to explain to whatever audience we have. And we, we assume these things without even knowing we're doing them. Mother Ease is very distinctive prosodically, but I, I've never studied it. But oh my goodness, when somebody's talking like that, and you turn around, you expect to see a child and they're talking to a dog. You think, wow, are they, that dog is their baby. Oh. And by assuming these different positives, by taking them on, we are verbally costuming ourselves in that role. John Baugh, who was the last president of the Linguistic Society of America, did a study years ago. John is a Black man from Los Angeles who is the child of a doctor, I believe, and very well educated. And John can talk Black. John can talk White. John can talk Latino. So he did a study in which he called people up about an apartment that had been advertised. And he did it with his black voice, with his white voice, with his Latino voice. And he found that with some voices, the apartment was no longer available. Sorry. And he established so much of what we understand today. And that was very early in our studies. Now we know much more about different varieties of American English, of different ethnic groups, racial groups. But he established that it, there, there was a strong thing going on. But, but when we hear somebody talking the way we talk, we feel much more comfortable. I say we, you know, I shouldn't say we. I'm saying in general, it seems like that. You may not feel that way. I may not feel that way. Maybe our people listening are not feeling that way. But it seems that people respond in a way that shows that they're comfortable with somebody who seems to speak like them. But if somebody assumes a, a voice that is different from yours, if they assume the doctor voice, if they assume the teacher voice, 
if they assume some voice of authority, like a journalist, maybe we listen closer. Maybe we're put in our place and they win the, the discussion. <laughs> if there's a point of controversy, they're probably right, not us. So when people do these things, you're kind of putting on your crown or whatever. As a, as a newscaster or, or whatever. Yeah. 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 I mean, because you're indexing. I mean, I think that's how it gets, probably gets back to indexicality, which is when we speak, we're indexing all kinds of things. And the same thing goes for even a slight prosodic shift like newscasters employ when they're on the air is that that is indexing a certain mm -hmm. level of authority, intelligence, and I guess more pragmatically, the, the dissemination of knowledge, probably. And we hear that and we respond to it and we know exactly who's talking to us the same way that you know, doctor speech and lawyer speech and all these things. And I guess that's, to me, really what got me fascinated with linguistics in the first place is just the power of things like language, which we sometimes overlook, but how it really matters when you don't sound like a lawyer, quote unquote, or you don't sound like a doctor, or you don't sound like the person that we want to rent this apartment. The John Baugh study you referenced, you're probably like the third person to come on this podcast and talk about oh, John Baugh's. TED Talk? Yeah. I mean, I love John. He's, he's the OG. We love John, right? Because it's just such a great reminder. It's like, he called. He called and the apartment wasn't available and suddenly it was. And it's a phone call. So we can really only blame it on language. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And we learn these things very young. Like by the time you were 12, you really have it all together. And you pro your ear is probably as trained as it's going to be unless you become a linguist or a speech pathologist or something like that. So, you know, an eight-year-old gets off the phone, you know, somebody called, asked for their parent, and the parent isn't home, they get off the phone. But you ask the kid, okay, so who was it? The kid can say, it wasn't somebody who speaks English very well. So they'll know whether it was a foreigner or not. It was somebody young, or it was somebody old, or it was a woman. They'll know a lot. They can guess a lot. And by the time they're 12, they might be able to guess it was a well-educated person. You know, they might be able to guess at a whole bunch of things about the person just by a few words on the phone. We're really tuned into very fine things that are hard for you as a linguist, me as a linguist, to try to formalize. But they're, they're real. We're noting them. Right. Yeah. We, we're always noting them. I always ask people to give a pitch or a reason or an explanation for why you study linguistics, why anyone should study linguistics, what is important about the discipline, what is crucial about understanding language. Why, why linguistics? Okay. And I want to say before I start, that I don't encourage people to go to graduate school in linguistics unless they are doing computational work for which there are lots of jobs and interesting jobs, or they are doing work that relates somehow to multilingualism because there are societies everywhere are multilingual and going to become more multilingual as migrations happen more and more over the next decade or two, however long, are there going to be jobs in theoretical linguistics? If the present is an indication, the answer is no. 
But that said, I think linguistics is a wonderful undergraduate major. And I also think that everybody should take a linguistics class. Why? It's like everybody should know how to count their change. They should be able to do some basic addition and subtraction and multiplication. People used to think everybody should do calculus. And now my husband was just telling me that there is a debate in academia now as to whether or not people should be teaching the calculus because you can do it so quickly with a machine. Why waste your time on that? Instead, spend your time on the various parts of higher algebra, which are so beautiful. So I, I don't know what's going to go on. Whatever. In linguistics, I think even taking a single course is crucial to being an educated person. Why? Because language is part of almost every interaction you are going to have in your life, certainly with other human beings, but also via reading, via text. You are going to relate to many things out there in the world. And you better understand how some, some critical things about language or you're going to miss opportunities. You're going to misunderstand. You're going to perhaps be filled with biases that are absurd and you don't even realize they're absurd because you were taught them maybe explicitly, maybe you were told explicitly, that's not the right way to talk. So there's a right and a wrong way to talk. Maybe you were told explicitly, that's a nasty word. And so some words themselves are nasty. There's a whole bunch of things that we teach people that are maybe destructive of their ability to negotiate their way via language, through life, through their job, through their relationships. I think once you've taken a linguistics course, you can't look at many of the old things that you were taught. You can't look at them the same way. And it's very interesting to me. These days, people are upfront. Well, many people in many places, especially on college campuses, are upfront about their sexual and gender orientations. But it didn't always used to be that way. It was often that you had to protect yourself. You had to have an outer self and an inner self. And you didn't let other people know about that inner self until you trusted them. And uh, when linguistics really started blossoming in the late 60s and early 70s, that's when it became a discipline that was really on everybody's table. Every university wanted to have something to do with linguistics. If you did a little survey of linguists at that point, the number of people who presented themselves as other than straight, monogamous, whatever, was much higher than the general population. And I don't think it's because linguists were different. I think it's because they were willing to say it. 
And the reason they were willing to say it, I think, this is all my own take on it now, is because studying linguistics frees your brain. It opens your mind up. You realize, okay, people slapped you on the hand for that. They were wrong. There's nothing wrong with that. You can own it. Linguistics opens your mind. And if linguistics did that to people in the 70s regarding sexuality and gender, then if everybody studied linguistics now, we might have a much better society. We might have a much more just society because people would not just be accepting things. Language is so deep in you. And if you're told what you say is fine, the question is, let's discover what rules you are following. But it's not a mistake. You can't make a mistake. You're a native speaker of that language. What you do is data. When you're told that, you're empowered. And if we empower everybody, one after another, imagine how many stupid biases we can throw away. Wow. I mean, that's a great defense for it, but I just really want to underscore that, that this is power in a lot of, in a sense. Yes. To understand what is deep in you, to be able to question, why is it that I was told, or why is it that I was implicitly, perhaps, told on the playground, in class, uh, wherever it was that my phonological variation is wrong or low class or sounds uneducated. Why is that? And we, we hear this all the time as linguists. We hear that people lost or deliberately got rid of their dialect, their accents because of practical reasons. And I think that if you study linguistics, you're going to learn to question why we feel so compelled to fit some sort of linguistic norm. And also linguistics teaches you that anything can be data. Yeah. You know, you can be watching children on a playground and what they're saying to each other and the amount of time that they give each other to speak, how they interrupt each other, what is their turn taking like, all sorts of things about the, it's data. It can be studied and that, helps you to see your whole world as data. It's, uh, it helps you as a gardener. It helps you in your job. It helps you in everything. It's just a way. It's a way of thinking. It's a way of asking, questioning. Thank you so much for listening to Tomato Tomato. I have been your host, Talia Sherman, and that was my interview with Professor Donna Jo Napoli from Swarthmore College. If you want to check out any of the research that Donna Jo's done or watch her TED Talk or read any of the books that she's written, you can check out the episode description for links to all the things that you should need. Once again, thank you so much to anyone who's listened now or any time in the past year. You're the reason this podcast is living on and continuing beyond high school and through college and hopefully beyond college and hopefully then through my time in academia, if indeed my life ever does exit academia. But thank you truly for listening. And I will see you in the next episode where I will interview my cognitive science professor, Megan Zernstein. See you then. Bye.